Father, once again, we're thankful that we have in our hands a treasure that Old Testament believers did not have. Most of them didn't own the whole set of even the Old Testament scrolls. They didn't have books like we did. They had scrolls or papyri. They just did not have the privilege of having a bound edition and then having the opportunity of having multiple translations in our, in our own language. And Father, we're so privileged with this book. But the problem, as we've seen, is, is, is that no matter what translation people use, if it gathers dust, it isn't going to help them. So Father, may we be those who not only know what this book is about, know what it says, and are convinced of its trustworthiness, but those who also are willing to use it and follow what it says for us. And then we'll be blessed, Father. May this time be beneficial. We're thankful again for the last hour and for all the benefits of realizing the difference between these words for unrighteous. No one is going to mature without understanding those. And that's an important part of what the Bible has to offer, is clear instructions on what we're like, because the Bible is truth. Bless in our time together now we ask in our Savior's name. Amen. And that's uh, what Kevin was doing in the last hour, really, is a good testimony <coughs> and a good example of the Bible being truth. The Bible is reality. The reality is you can't sin in your mind. That's reality. And... Is, and when you, when you put it in those terms, I've, I've come to the conclusion that when you say reality for truth, that that strikes a different note with people because the way people use things being true today, you can fudge on something and say, well, it's, it's true. Well, they have this, this term that they use now that just, just drives me crazy. They say something is disingenuous. Would someone please tell me what disingenuous means? Doesn't it basically mean it's a lie or it's wrong? Isn't it a nice way? Uh, since when is changing the changing a word for a less harmful, a less negative sounding term, change what something is. You know, a disingenuous, that was a disingenuous remark. How about it was a flat out lie? <laughs> Why don't people say that? Oh well. So we're looking at the section on, in scripture, and this is an important section because uh, it isn't true with our <coughs> in our church, and it is true in a lot of churches, however, where the trustworthiness of the Bible <clears throat> is somewhat called into question. So we started on that last week, and we've got down to a major point. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, you saw those quotes back on page, number, on page four, and when you look at those quotes, you will see this is what so-called scholarship actually thinks of the Bible. It's not a very good impression they have of it, because they, they think that, uh, well, that last on, on page for that on the first paragraph under A, trustworthiness of the Bible, that highlighted section. But we can blame people alive today for preferring the errors of ancient writers over reliable knowledge developed today. Reliable, reliable knowledge, is that something like black, like dark energy and dark matter that you can't see, you can't prove, but you have to believe it's there? Or, or some of the theories that they have come out with only to change there was, a, there was a quote, and I read someplace, and I wish I had it with me, where this, this uh, young man came up to this older gentleman who was a believer and said, well, you people, you really don't believe in science, do you? And the modern thought, he says, what do you mean the science of 1890, or the science of 1920, or the science of 1950, or the science of 1980, or the science of 2010? And the young man got the, got the point. What people consider to be truth or science they keep changing it. And so they call it truth, and that's why people don't understand the word true sometimes today, because they use it for things that turn out to not be true. 
they're disingenuous things. <laughs> but that shows you what people think, and, and I think that's something to, to, to notice is that attitude. We can blame people alive today for preferring the errors of ancient writers over reliable knowledge developed today. That's how some of us are viewed. Now, the trustworthiness of the Bible. One of the things that, that I've run into, and Pastor Kevin probably has run into it, and, and Dan probably has run into it also, in speaking different places, is when you, if you allude to the Greek text, there, will be, there are lots of people that are uncomfortable with it because the church I pastored, we used the King James, and I never challenged it. But I'd show them where this word was translated differently, which I was basically telling them about Greek without ever saying Greek or anything else, because they were that that term spooked them because there have been too many people who have that are unbelievers that have misused Greek, and they've also brought out this this matter of the reliability of text. They say, oh, there's all these textual there's all these textual problems throughout the New Testament, especially now the Old Testament wasn't so difficult. What they did in the Old Testament was when they made a copy they would count out the characters on the page and if they didn't match completely with it with the copy they were making uh, using to copy from if their copy didn't match word for word they destroy theirs and start over again they wouldn't look for them they just destroy and start over again because they were convinced it had to be perfect and as a result you don't have very many textual variations in the old testament just just a few and none of them are really of any great consequence but now in the new testament you got thousands of them. And so those who don't believe the Bible say, there's thousands and thousands of textual variants. There's textual problems all over the place. How can you depend upon this book with all these textual problems? The, 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 favored, the favored manuscript of the, of the uh, less conservative is this one called Vaticanus, a, li- a, a document found or a, a Bible copy found in the Vatican Library, and downstairs in the Vatican, and they call it Vaticanus. It was found there. And there are 40-some thousand textual problems in that one manuscript, which makes you think it's not a very good copy, and it really isn't. And so people say there's 40,000 plus errors in the, in the New Testament alone. Well, now, let's, let's, let's stop and talk about that on top of page 5. I will say this. The New Testament does have, quote-unquote, textual problems. Now, I don't use that term anymore. I've stopped using that term in the last couple of years because I think it, it could mislead people into think that there's a problem with something in the Bible. No, I call it variant readings, because that's really what it is. Now, there, there, are, there are textual problems. There are many. They're more common in the four Gospels. Now, when you stop there, that, this tells you something. The fact that there are more errors common in the four, in the four Gospels and there are more existent copies of the four Gospels, that tells you something very important about church history. That tells you that they were following Jesus. They were following the words of Christ. In fact, there's one manuscript that's a very elegant ancient manuscript that actually has the words of Christ in red letters. It's on purple vellum. It's very, it was very expensive at the time. It was probably somebody who had a lot of money wanted that copy, and it had it in red ink. You can still see it, and it's from about, I think it's the 5th or 6th century. And it, it, So they were following the words of Christ. In other words, they were following the Sermon on the Mount. And so they were using that, and so there wasn't quite so much attention. So you have a lot more errors in the Gospels, and that shows you something about the early church. It's just a very interesting fact that they were already, they had already gotten away from the doctrine of grace. They were already going back to living under the law. And that problem, the first problem the church faced is one that really never got over. And that first problem, as you go to Acts 15, the first problem the church faced was, what do we do with the law? 
Well, they could agree that the Gentiles weren't under the law in Acts 15, you can see it, but they never concluded the Jews weren't under the law. And somehow the law crept back in with the Gentiles, and it's, it's there today. In some fashion, people want to keep the law. So you have more copies, but that's, that's an aside of a sort. So, now, there are many variant, or these textual problems are variant readings, but number two, you'll notice on top of the page, no variant reading. Now, I'm calling them variant readings, you know, I'll probably call them that. If I slip up and call them textual problems, uh, I give Dan permission to come up and smack me upside the head afterwards. Dan and I have been known each other a long time. I'm not doing that anymore. He's not smacking anymore. <laughs> well, I'll give you permission anyway. But uh, if you hear me use that, I, I mean textual variant because I like a variant reading. I like that because that's really what it is. It's not really a quote-unquote problem. It's a variation. And you know what? You know how the manuscripts were made? They didn't have printing presses. Somebody sat down, they took one manuscript, and they got papyri or vellum or whatever they were using, and they were copying from one to another. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever copied anything of any length, have you ever skipped over a line or left a word out or put it in? Oh, I left it out. I'll put it in afterwards. Anybody ever done that? Sure. You've all done that. So if this was all copied, is, is, it, is it reasonable to assume that humans could have maybe miscopied and the problem is not with the text of Scripture, but it's a problem with the fact that human beings doing it? Anytime we put our hands in it, if anything we get involved in, it's going to be a problem. Now, statistically, number three, you'll notice, statistically, 80% of the existing manuscripts agree word for word on 95% of the New Testament. So that tells you right there, it's a very small amount of scripture that there's any vari variant readings or any variations at all. 80% of manuscripts, now that, that means, and there's, there's right now, I, I just looked at it this afternoon, they're up to about 5,700 copies of the New Testament. Now, those aren't all complete copies. Some of them are little pieces, like the P52, Papyri 52, is a little piece about this big that goes back to about 110 AD. You're getting way back there. That's getting very, very close to the time it was written, within probably 15, 20 years of John writing it, maybe a little more than that. But then some of them are bigger pieces. They have uh, several manuscripts from around 200 AD that are almost the whole New Testament in Greek. Now, from 200 A.D. today, that's, that is just absolutely remarkable. And they have, quite, they have quite a few. I think I wrote down a number. Uh, they have currently about 5,700 manuscripts, and about 80 of them are between 100 to 300 A.D. And that's going way back. Because some of your manuscripts were copied. When they copied a manuscript, it was, a, it was A.D. 250. And so there was a manuscript here. It was a manuscript from A.D. 115 and so he's copying it over so you see a manuscript that's newer he may have made it from a much older copy so when you say up to 300 AD you're getting back to the copies that may have been made the second copy may have been made from something that was right back at the very beginning just about so when you have that many manuscripts you have quite a long reach and it's quite a testimony to the to the integrity of scripture because 80% of them agree on 95% of the text that's pretty remarkable. Now, number four, there is no important doctrine that hinges on a variant reading of any scripture. No important doctrine. Now, if there was some, doc if it was some doc uh, doctrines that would hang on some of these things, I might be more concerned about it. But I've handled personally, now this is me personally, I, I won't speak for anybody else, but when I come across textual variants, I tend to, a lot of times, just pass over them because if it's not going to affect any doctrine, 
If it's a matter of a simple word here or there, I'll choose the reading that I prefer from the Greek text and just go with that. And I don't think that's dishonest because uh, there's no, some of this, when we go through this in a second, you'll see that there's no value. There's no, there's no reason to even look at it. There's no reason to be worried about it. Because these textual problems do not, comp you'll notice number five, these textual problems or variant readings do not constitute errors in scripture, but are errors by the men who copied them. Now, most of the so-called textual problems fall in just a few categories. Now, here you'll see why we say it's not worth worrying about that much. The first one is word order. Now, we don't understand. Does, does anybody here take Latin beside my wife? Anybody suffer through? Yeah, so you, Latin has a case system. Greek has a case system. Now, what that means is the subject is always going to be in the nominative case. Now, if you don't know what that means, that's, that's neither here nor there. But that, that can be anywhere in the sentence. Because you have a subject case, the form of that word says, this is the subject of the sentence. It doesn't matter where it is in the sentence. I have a, I have a Greek textbook at home that the only good thing about it was not a very good, whoever wrote it was just not a very good Greek teacher. And I've said the only good thing in it is it shows you there's 27 different ways in Greek to say God loves a cheerful giver. Would you believe that? 27 different ways to do it. And it's all, all of this is just word order. You're just shifting things around. And what they would do is that they would shift word order to, for the matter of emphasis. If you put a word first in a sentence, that was, the, that was the important word. And my favorite illustration, I shared it with you before, is if you have an interlinear, uh, how many of you folks have interlinears here? If you do, take a look at Hebrews 4.12. Anybody has an interlinear? And what you'll see, it's translated into King James, for the word of God is living. But if you look at it, what's the first word in your, in your interlinear? If you look at the words underneath it. What was that now? Living. living. She said living. So there you go, living. Now, what, if that's first, what does that mean? That's emphatic. It would be like us saying, for the word of God is living. That's what it means. It's the emphasis on it. And so Greek word order would do that. So by changing the word order, there are textual variants where the word order is shifted. Now, what does that do? Uh, it may change an emphasis slightly, but you know, I don't think, I think we have a hard enough time teaching people what scripture means, and we never get to the point of saying, oh, this is emphasized here, and that's, we don't, we don't always get down to that point. And so it's not as critical as it might sound, or even as interesting. So you'll notice that word order, the New Testament doesn't have a set word order. We have, we have a set word order, subject, verb, and object. We would say, the boy hit the ball. The boy, subject, hit, verb, the ball, object. But Greek wouldn't do that. The, boy could, the, the Greek could say, the ball hit the boy. It makes it sound like the boy. But the case would tell you the boy was a subject. But you could have it at the end of the sentence. You could have it in the middle. You could have it any place you like to. Now... You know, while the scholars are going to deb debate the virtues of variant readings, and they do, and I have to confess, uh, I've done it, and I know Dan Ray and I have gotten together about textual variants, and we, oh, Dan and I have had fun going over them and talking about why is this that way, and you can get all taken up with it, but you know what, at the end of the, at the, end of the discussion, we both had to admit, it really didn't change anything, but it's fun. It's fun. You, really, you get in there, you wonder, why did this happen, who did it, why did they do it, what does it mean? But they won't change anything, and most of them are not worth discussing. Now, you notice, most of them are not worth discussing because they don't change anything in Scripture. Now, I wouldn't say, I'm not saying that on a graduate school level or a college level, but I, I'm saying that on a, on a church level. 
most of the textual variants I wouldn't share with people because it takes time and, and it's, if it's not going to change anything, is there a reason that I should do it? You know, I, I want to spend my time making things practical. I want things to be clear. I want things to be obvious. I, I don't want to get attention off on something else and, and start talking about these old manuscripts. And Oh, it, it, can be, it can be fun if you have an interest in those old manuscripts. It's really fascinating to me. I can get there and I have my, I don't have with me, I have a Greek. It has all the manuscripts, the major manuscripts. It has a date and I can show, oh, this is the gospel. This one, was, this one was written from the 3rd century. Here's one from the 4th century. Here's one that says P66 is from 200 AD. P46 is from 200 AD. Those are both papyri manuscripts. How much, did anybody get edified out of knowing that? I don't think so. I don't think so. So, now, there's a few examples of what happens. And this word order thing is, okay, you notice point number eight. In John 17, 16, the phrase, I am not of this world, in some Greek, some Greek manuscripts that would read, if you translate it word for word, of the world I am not. Okay? Now, some manuscripts would read, I'm not of the world, but some would read, of the world I am not. No matter whether we accept either, which, no matter which one we except we still have to translate that in English as I'm not of this world because you wouldn't, you wouldn't put an, a sensible translation of the world I am not not unless you were Yoda <laughs> Yoda might do that okay we'll, we'll make an exception for the Yoda translation of the New Testament but otherwise so you can see but, but that's listed as a textual variant and there are those who when they count them they say see here's a textual problem but does it really make any difference you can only translate it one way in English can't you but that's an example of it. Now, there's another one. This one's even more fun. Look at the next one down. Point number B with a, with a half a parenthesis. In Matthew 12, 27, the phrase, they shall be your judges, has four variant readings, four variations of it in the Greek. Now, in some manuscripts, it has, they judges of you will be. Others say, they your judges will be. And they your, they, 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 your, will be judges. And finally, judges, will they be of you? Now, those are all possible in Greek because you don't have a word order. You have a case system. And, but how would you translate all four of those? How would you do it? Wouldn't you have to say, they shall be your judges? I mean, you look at all the, are you going to say, judges, will they be of you? That's in the Yoda translation. That's the Yoda. I admit that's the Yoda but you see what we're saying. But this is counted as a textual, and they would count this as four textual, they would count this as, some of the critics would count this as four textual problems. It's actually just one. It's one variation. But really, does it make any difference? Does this cast any doubt upon the integrity of the New Testament? No, because you can only translate this into English. They shall be your judges. So why would you be, why would anybody be concerned about something like this? But you see, those who question the authority of Scripture, they have an axe to grind in anything they can pick up and blow out of proportion, they're going to do it. And that's what's typically done. And so when you get below the surface, you find, wait a minute, this is a textual problem? Well, this, we've got better than that. You want to see something that are really good. And this will be coming up, the spelling of a name or a place. This is a good one. Because they'll count, this is a textual problem. And the first, first illustration on here is just, it doesn't mean anything. Well, 
Well, there are a few places where a name is spelled two different ways. This is hardly a major error in scripture. Copies were made by hand, and as long as human beings are involved, errors can occur. The fact that copyists misspelled a name does not change the accuracy of God's word. Here's a few examples. Matthew 12, 27, the name Beelzebub is spelled Beelzebul in two manuscripts, which many of the scholars, the critical text, those who like the critical text of scripture, which if you don't know what that is, I can talk, well, I'll tell you more about that privately. But it's, it's a text that some of the not-so-conservative people like. And it has, so they favor Beelzebul. But the majority of the texts are Beelzebub. But now, is that, a, is that a serious problem to say Beelzebul or Beelzebub? I, I don't even think anybody would even be interested in it. I mean, it, it might be something. I don't know if even all of your, if, if uh, some of your translation, modern translations will put textual problems at the bottom with textual variant readings. I don't even think this is included in that because there's only just about two, base, two basic manuscripts that do it. And some people think that that's the best pair of manuscripts that are out there, the most accurate. Well... They're not. <laughs> Just trust me, they're not on that. We're not going to go into textual criticism. I'm going to resist, and I'm going to resist the temptation. Dan's smiling because he knows how much fun it is. Yeah, we, we've, Dan and I have had so much fun with that together. We'll have to do it again sometime. So, now in Matthew, another one. Here's another one in Matthew 8.28. Gergesenes is spelled as Gerasinov, Gerasivov in one manuscript, Gezeras, Gezarson, and another, and in the, va- in the vast majority of manuscripts, that's it. And then it is one other manuscript. It is Gadarenon. Now, does that really make any difference to anybody? I, I, you notice I put most English readers are not even aware that these variations exist, and they certainly do not change anything about this passage, because what was important in this passage? You remember what that was about? Let's go over to Matthew chapter eight for just a moment. And show me and tell me if, if once you see what's going on, if you even care about the name of the city. Now, I'm not saying it's not important, but I'm saying that the variations, whatever the name of the city actually was, it's not as important when you get to Matthew 8.28. And when he was come to the other side, Matthew 8.28, other side in the country of the Gergesenes, now there's Gergesenes, the King James picks up, which is one of the readings uh, there met him two possessed with devils coming out of the tombs, exceeding fear, so that no man might pass that way. And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? And there was a good way off from them a herd of many swine feeding. Now, wait a minute, these Jews are keeping pigs? They said, Is it, did anybody see a problem here? They're herding swine? Were they supposed to eat pork? Uh, no, they... they Poor people, you know, they really had a tough life because they couldn't have bacon. I, I will say that. One, one of the better things we have today is we can eat bacon. <laughs> That's not in the scripture, but it sure is, comes to mind in my mind. So, the, verse 31. So the devils besought him, saying, If you cast us out, suffer us to go in the herd of swine. And he said unto them, Go. And when they were come out, they went into the herd of swine. And behold, the whole herd of swine ran violently down a steep place into the sea and perished in the waters. Now stop there for just a moment. There, there's a, I, I don't know if you've heard this, but I was taught, and I think I've seen it in commentaries, that demons like to have embodiment, and they just want to have bodies so they can influence people. 
Well, if demons want embodiment, why would they get in this herd of swine and then immediately go and drown the swine? Why would they do this? Does that make any sense? No, they, they will use embodiment in some cases, like this man. They're using him, but they weren't going to use the swine. And so, why did they do it? Well, let's read on a little bit, and you'll see exactly why why they, the swine did what they did, or why the pig, the devils did to the swine what they did. It says, they, Then they that kept them fled, and went their way into the city, and told everything, and what was befallen to the, to the possessed of the devils. And behold, the whole city came out to, Jesus, to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they besought him that he would depart out of their coasts. Oh, that's what the demons were up to. Why did they want to go in the swine? Because they, they, they made a catastrophe out of them. And while there may have been a good sale on bacon, the people asked Jesus to leave. You see what they were doing? So if people, if you ever read where they say, well, demons want to have embodiment. Well, that, they might if, they, if, if, they're, if it suits their purpose. But what they did here shows that they didn't have to have it because they did a whole lot more damage by what... Now, of course, it, what is interesting is the next time Jesus came back, because of the man that has the demons taken out of him, He's going to go in and tell everybody what God's done for him. And then next time, when Jesus comes back, then they're all ready to meet him. But the first time, Satan thought he had a... His, his boys did a pretty good one here. He got rid of Jesus. They, they drove him away. He wasn't going to be able to talk to these people. That's what the demons were up to. So, with that all in mind, the original question is, what was the name of that city? Does anybody remember what the name of the city is without looking at it? You don't... Chances are, if you're like me, you have to say, uh, oh, it's right there. You don't remember why, because what was important was not the name of the city. It was what happened there. And by the way, I don't think, I, I don't think, I'm not sure, I don't know my archaeology that well anymore, but I don't know if they've ever excavated a city by any of these names that you could point to and say, this is the city where it happened. I don't know that this is all that important, and no more important than the name is. The important thing is what happened, and that was what matters. So here you've got the Gergesenes. Well... Now, the next one is probably, uh, none of these are too, too really major. The next one is the tense of a Greek verb. Now, the textual variants concerning the tense of a verb are of greater importance to the faithful Bible teacher who uses Greek. Now, they mean more to, to pastor, will pay, pay more attention to it. I will, Dan will, uh, all of the guys that teach will pay attention to the tense of a Greek verb because it tells us something that we may be able to share with you. For example, if it's something that's completed action, if I say this is a completed action or this is something that only happened one time, that reflects a Greek verb, the tense of a Greek verb. Now, I'm not going to necessarily get up here and tell you, well, that's an aorist or that's an imperfect or a pluperfect. I'm not going to say that, but I, but I will tell you that this is completed action. So, uh, so, top of page six. The tense of the verb changes the type of action and it's valuable in teaching scripture. It is valuable in teaching scripture. There are many times where... where uh, the understanding it, when, when Pastor quoted 1 John 1 9, he quoted it. If you look at the King James, what is the King? Let's, let's go over to 1 John 1 9. What does the King James actually say? Now, we, we can read it just like it is because if someone doesn't know the language at all and if they've never heard it, uh, heard this doctrine taught and don't understand what it means to confess sin. And if I'm emphasizing confession, I might not even bring up the fact that this, that this word 
or the tense of this verb is important. I might not bring it up because they might not need to know it. It might be just enough to get them to realize what confession is. Confession means to say the same thing. If I confess my sin, I don't sit there and say, well, oh God, I was so weak, I couldn't help myself. That candy bar was over there and I couldn't do anything about it. It just attacked me. You know, you don't make excuses. You just say, Father, I did this. It was sin. That's saying the same thing God would say. Now, if I was teaching for the first time to someone that never heard it, I would be going over that. But if it's someone that knows a little bit more, it says, if we confess our sins. Now, there's, there's a catch. That's not the right tense of the verb. That's not a good translation of it, actually. It's what we would call a subjunctive. It's something, this, is a, what I, this statement is what I call a 50-50 proposition. It really says, if you want to translate, if we should confess our sins, meaning that I might do it and I might not. Well, have you ever found yourself thinking you didn't confess them? Well, everybody was doing it. It was just a little white lie. Everybody, you know, everybody cheats on their taxes, don't they? You know, maybe everybody does, but that doesn't mean you're, you're going to get away with it. So if we should confess our sins. But see, now that's, that's important to me, but do I need to tell you that the, the technical terminology here? Well, I'm going to just say what I told you. It's a 50-50 proposition. So the tense does make a difference when we teach, but it doesn't change anything. It may change the emphasis of a verse in Scripture, but it's not going to change the meaning of it. So it's still not going to be a problem because in, in the English, we are, not as, we are not as clearly defined with our, the use of our verbs as they are. We have a whole string of verbs. We have helping verbs and everything else to say some of the things that you can say in, with a single verb in Greek or with a single verb in Hebrew. We don't have the facility to do that. What I love in Hebrew is they have one form of the verb that, tell, that emphasizes someone did this. It, says, it really says, this person really did this. Now, you have to say all that. You can say that with one Hebrew verb, and it takes a whole string of English to say what that one is. You know what I'm talking about. Dan knows exactly. I'm talking about a hifil in, in the Hebrew. So, so, however, verse, this is number three on top of page six. However, changing the emphasis of the type of action, completed action versus ongoing action in the past, will change the emphasis of the verse, but it will not change the meaning. And therefore, the textual variants regarding the tense of the verb are something of... Uh, are, are not something of which should cause anyone to question or doubt any verse of Scripture. In other words, it doesn't cast any question on the integrity of Scripture. Now, there's some, there's some variants of that, and you can see examples of it. If you look at John 3.19. Let's see, John 3.19. Let's, let's go there and look at it. And this is a very, now, and, But these are things that to the unbelievers, to the skeptics that write uh, and, and if you don't know a little bit about the text, that's why we're covering this about textual variance and mentioning it. Uh, it can be a problem. It can make you think, well, there's something here we, we, we don't understand. This isn't good. Let's see. John, let me see. John 3.19 is uh, da, 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 to ask. Let's see. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, men love darkness rather than but I think I have the wrong verse there, don't I? No, it's uh, the light is coming into the world. Let's see. Uh, that light and the light has come into the world. Men love darkness rather than light. Let's see. No, I have here it's in order that they might ask. Now, where is that? Ah, uh, that that must. I, I think I know what that is. Let me see. I think I think that typo. 
Um, yeah, it's John 1.19. Change that to John 1.19. That's the mistake. Ugh. Or they might ask. I, rem I remember what that was about. That goes back Is to... That a scribal error? That's a, now, there's a, there's a textual variant in my notes. You folks have a textual variant in your notes. Now, does that question the, does that question the reliability of my notes? Well, in my case, it might. <laughs> At least it, cha cha it challenges the reliability of my proofreader. That's me. It says, and so, in verse 18... I like what John did in, in the Gospel of John. John does something that no, no other writer of Scripture does. In the first 18 verses, he gives you an outline of what the Gospel is about. That's unique to John. He, he's the only writer of Scripture. He does that, and you see that in 1 John. There's a, there is an introduction that tells you what he's writing about in the first several verses of 1 John. And here you have, you, you have the whole emphasis on what he was going to write about. You have an introduction to it, in essence. And he, and he caps that off by saying in verse 18 of John 1, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. That's a good word. That word declared, I like that word. It means he's exegeted or he has explained him thoroughly. In other words, Jesus Christ fully explained what deity was like when he was here. Now, in verse 19, and this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to, a, to ask him, who art thou? Now, there it is. It's to ask him. Now, let's see. To ask, looking back in, in, in our notes, A, to ask is literally in order that they might ask, which is a aorist subjunctive, which doesn't mean anything to you, but that they might, in other words, they might ask, which means, well, they might ask him if they can get to him. Maybe they can go there and they didn't get the opportunity. Maybe they won't get the opportunity, so the text will allow you to say that. But some readers, some manuscripts read, in order that they ask, which is a present tense, and it shifts the emphasis, they're going to do it one way or another. So the difference is whether the priests and Levites might ask if they got the opportunity or whether they were sent for one reason to ask, who are you? Now, there is a distinction there, but does that change anything about the text? All it tells us is one way or another, it comes down to the bottom line that the priests and Levites sent some people, or the Jews, the, the Jewish leadership sent priests and Levites. They sent them to ask whether it was in order that they might ask or whether it was the only reason that they would ask. There's a slight, you see the difference between, there's just a slight variation between the two. But does it question, does it cause you to doubt anything about Scripture? No. I, I think where it's, where it's good at is to see that there is the potential for that to give you a deeper appreciation of what could have happened. Because they were sent with one reason. I, I tend to think it, it, that they just may have been, it was they were sent, they, they were going to ask him. They were going to get there, and they were, if they did nothing else, they were going to ask this man. It wasn't if they got the opportunity, which would be the subjunctive. It was the other one, the, other, it was the, the indicative. They were going to do it. They were going to find out from him exactly who he was. That's what Nicodemus did. Remember, he had to come by night. And by the way, I think in John 3, when Nicodemus came at night, I think it's something similar to this. He came at night because you couldn't get to Jesus any other way. He came at night because he wanted to see him. I don't think he was embarrassed. If he was embarrassed at Jesus, tell me why it, when, when they buried Jesus' body that he brought 100 pounds of spices. Now, if he didn't want to be associated with Jesus or have anybody admit that he knew him or had any relation to him personally... Why would the man publicly bring 100 pounds of spices in front of the Roman governor? 
So he came at night because he couldn't get to him any other way. I remember the incident, and it's recorded in the Gospels, where they had to tear the roof off of the building to get a man down in front. <clears throat> That's how hard it was to see him. So Nicodemus didn't want to tear the roof off. He just came. <laughs> he wasn't on the roof tearing any tiling off the ceiling. So, but you see now, there, that's a textual variant. Is it in order that they might ask? Or is it in order that they ask? Were they sent with a possibility they might ask? Or were they sent that they were going to do it? Flip a coin. Neither one of them is going to change the meaning of it. It just gives you a slightly different emphasis of it. And I don't see any problem with it. Now, in John 6.57, you have another one that's as, and let's take a look at that too. And I hope that these, uh, these may seem difficult, and now you see why I try not to get, get involved with textual variants when you speak, because it can be difficult to explain them, and you can spend a lot of time that would be better spent doing other things. But in John 6.57, it says, As the Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. So he says, as the Father has sent me. Now that's, that is an aorist. That is a statement of fact. It's a completed action. The Father sent him. It's a fact that he was sent. It doesn't tell you anything about how long it took. It just says the Father sent him. But now, there is also a variant there where it emphasizes it's an imperfect. As the living Father has sent me with the result, I'm still here. It's an, it's an imperfect. Now, pardon me for using a little bit of the Greek language or the textual, but you have a, a statement of fact, an aorist. One, the majority of the text says, the Father sent me. It's a fact. The, other, the, the minority reading says, the Father sent me with the result I'm still here. It emphasizes he was sent and he's still here. Now, is there any difference between the two? Does it change anything? Uh, to me, it doesn't. Now, what I'm wondering with some of these things is the copyists that made these, and this, this is something that, that uh, you can't prove, but I believe is the case. There were some copyists that made this that had a theological bias or an opinion. They thought, no, that doesn't make sense. It should be this, and they would change something. Because I do know in church history that there was uh, one of the so-called church fathers that said to, that said to different individuals said, stop changing the text of Scripture. If you want to know what the book of Ephesians says, go to Ephesus and see it. It's still there. And that was at 200 A.D. So as late as 200 A.D., the original copy of Ephesians that Paul wrote himself was still there. And so this one gentleman, Barnab I think it was uh, oh, what Barnab Barnabas, uh, I can't think of his name now. I forgot his name. Huh? No, it was, was one of the so-called church fathers. So he had said, stop changing the text of Scripture. Well, apparently there were some who thought that's not the right tense of the verb. So there, there were errors that were introduced. Those would be problems there if we accept them. But does it change anything? The Father sent me with the result I'm still here, or the Father sent me as a fact. What is, is there a difference between the two of them? Maybe that much. But in this case... I think I wouldn't even mention it if I was going through here. In fact, I know I wouldn't mention it because it's not going to make any difference. You could spend more time trying to explain why it doesn't make a difference than you could explain by what it means. So, that, so you can see those. Now, there's one other type here that we want to look at. We have time. We're going to probably, yeah, we'll get through this, I think. Uh, a word or a phrase that is included incorrectly in a verse. Now, that's not really a common error in the New Testament. 
But it did happen because men did, did uh, copy by hand, and there's always a possibility. And there are two well-known verses where this happened, and these are both verses that most of us are familiar with. There are, there are six in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Let's go back there to Romans 8, chapter 1. Now, every, all the, I think, I think the New King James includes that phrase in there, too. And I believe I looked at the English Standard Version, which is another modern translation. It's pretty good. Uh, it's not bad. It's actually, I would say, reasonably good. Uh, let's see. They include it. I think most of the modern translations pick this up, and I, I don't know why they did, except for the fact that a lot of translators follow this one erudite, this one scholarly manuscript that's based upon a handful of manuscripts. Well, I'm not going to go after that. But in Romans 8.1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, period. Now, you see that, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Well, if you look down in verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us if we walk after the spirit. In other words, we're going to have the same, we're going to have the same kind of righteousness that we ought to have. We're going to have it if we walk by means of the spirit. We're not going to have it by the law. It fits there, but does it make any sense? If you're in Christ today, and it says there's no condemnation to you that you're in Christ, is that only true if you don't walk after the flesh? What if you do walk after the flesh as a Christian? Is there now condemnation for you? Is it changed all of a sudden? I don't think it's changed. I don't think it's changed. You might write 2 Corinthians 5.21 next to this because it says there, you've been made the righteousness of God in Christ. Now, if that's true of you, if you've been made the righteousness of God in Christ, how can there be condemnation on you? Even if you don't do what you should do. Now, if you don't do what you should do, I think Pastor had it on his chart where it had something about punishment down there. You can get chastened for, for doing that. But it doesn't belong there. Now, you'll notice that the vast majority of manuscripts read, there is no, therefore no condemnation to them that are in Christ. So I think, it was, I think it was either by accident or deliberately. I, you really can't tell. That last statement, who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit, that was inadvertently copied. And I could see how you could do that. Or it might be that someone that uh, didn't really like grace and thought that you, you've got to mind your P's and Q's, you've got to hang on to your salvation, you've got to make sure you don't lose it, so you better be walking by means of the Spirit, you better not be walking after the flesh. Well, I think that's where it came from. It doesn't belong there. Now, this, you know, in this case I can say, well, this, this doesn't change anything, but for some people it would change something. Now, for you and I, I trust nobody here, it's going to change your mind at all, even if you leave that in there, because you know it doesn't belong there. Who walk not after the flesh. If you think that tonight, if you think that you're going to be condemned because you're carnal, you're missing the point. You're missing what it means to be in Christ because it's 2 Corinthians 5.21 is still there. And there is 1 Corinthians 11. I know you can get chastened and so forth, but let's, let's not go that far. Let's just look at the fact that you're in Christ, and if you're in Christ, you have God's kind of righteousness. Now, how in the world can you be condemned? Does it make any sense? So by context alone, it tells me it doesn't belong here. And just by the fact that the majority of manuscripts don't have it, but there are some, a handful that do. Now the other one that you know is 1 Corinthians 11.24. Now that's the big one. 
Let's go to 1 Corinthians 11.24. This is, this is an important one here. And if this is the closest that you can come, in my estimation, this is the closest you can come to seeing a textual variant that would make a difference in doctrine. Because if you put this in, you've got a big problem. You have scripture contradicting itself. Because you'll notice, broken is in this verse. In 1 Corinthians 11.23, For I received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, in the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, he, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Is that second broken there? Well, he broke it. He broke it, and for the first one, he broke it. When he gave thanks, he broke it. What? He broke it, goes back to the bread. He said, take heed, this is my body, which is broken for you. Now, was the body of Christ broken? Now, the, the pro- one of the problems you have here is that the most of the manuscripts, you'll notice point number C, this is, this is an odd one, but the number of manuscripts... Uh, B rather says the majority, the vast majority of the manuscripts is, do read, which is broken for you. That's the majority of the manuscripts. There's only a handful that don't have that in there. But, but here is the catch: is that a problem? If we take it out, it's not a problem because John 19 verse 36. You see, it's printed in your notes. John 19:36. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. Now, which reading are you going to take for 1 Corinthians 11.24 now? You're going to follow the majority of the manuscripts and put that word in? I, I won't do it because I see here scripture was fulfilled in the Old Testament. Prophecy comes out of Psalm 34.20. I'm not going to put that word in. It doesn't belong there. Evidently, somebody copied it or repeated it. He said they broke the bread, and he said, this is they, they just, the symmetry of it says they broke the bread, and then he said, this is my bar, this is broken for you. It continued broken, broken. Uh, somehow that might have just sound good to some people, and so it just became accepted. But if you look at Scripture, if you put that reading in there, then you're going to have to face up to what John 19 says. A bone of him shall not be broken. Because the Passover lamb, he was the perfect Passover lamb. And if you go back to Exodus chapter 12, it specifically says you were not to bake a bone of that lamb. It was not to happen. And Christ was our Passover. So you find that in 1 Corinthians 5. So if he was our Passover and it says a bone shall not be broken, and it's prophesied of him and he fulfills the Passover lamb, how in the world are you going to put broken in there? Now that, this is the closest. This is the closest I would say that you can come to finding a textual variant that is actually going to make a difference. But does it really make any difference if you take that word out? It should be taken out, really. Does it make any difference? We know his bones weren't broken. If you read over this, you know I've. When I was a pastor, I read over this and I just didn't say anything about it because you know I didn't I didn't want to stir up because this would be one that you could stir a hornet's nest up with people that love the King James they'd get upset if you started taking words out of there but the fact of the matter is by context of the Bible you can't put that word in there unless you want to make scripture contradict itself so in that case I would say the most the majority of the manuscripts that have broken in there just plain and simple they put it in there for who knows what reason but it doesn't belong so this is the closest, but you'll notice 
of all the other variations we've looked at, how many of those other problems that you saw really changed anything? Tense of a verb, word order. Word order doesn't change anything. Spelling of a word. No, none of those things change anything. So, but this is what you will find if you, were, if you listen to what they say when the critics of the Bible, if you ever read anything they say, they'll say there's so many errors in the Bible. This is what they're talking about. Those are the kind of things they're talking about. They're talking about errors, but they're not telling you what they are because if they did, you'd laugh up your sleeve at those people. Beelzebub or Beelzebul, two manuscripts of Beelzebul. You're telling me I would be concerned about that? I'm, not, I'm afraid I'm not. I'm afraid I'm not. I'm not going to be concerned about that, and I hope you're not either. So, we're going to go on and start looking at the structure of the Bible because in understanding a scripture, uh, because we're literal, the structure of the Bible becomes important, and we can see the difference in it. And this is, uh, this is really part of what it means to interpret literally. So this kind of goes back to last quarter when Courtney was teaching on interpreting the scripture. How do you interpret it literally? If you interpret it literally, the structure of the Bible is going to come to the fore and we're going to see the difference. Because it's, it becomes important. If we don't understand Hebrews 11, let's go there just for a moment. Hebrews chapter 11. This, this is a verse that I think is one of the ones that if we're going to speak on a verse too much or allude to a verse too much, this would be the one we could excuse ourselves for doing that. Because this is something that most believers don't seem to comprehend. Now, I, must, I said most believers. I'm not talking about our people here. I'm talking about most believers, those people out there, most of them. They don't understand this, and I think they might be a little surprised to read it. Now, you, you read about the words, worthies of the faith. In verse 38, it summarizes them. It says, of whom they were not worthy. Boy, that summarizes the world wasn't worthy. Of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in, in deserts and in mountains and in the caves and dens of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. Now, the promise that they had, the various promises for the Old Testament, none of them were, they didn't get them. They didn't get the kingdom. They didn't get resurrection. They didn't get eternal life. They didn't get those things. It says, all these, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. They're not going to get the Old Testament believer is going to get their benefits, but they're not going to get them until we get ours. Now, why God chose to do that, I don't know. But that's, that's grace. God has provided something better for us. So if this is true, then if we're literal, the structure of the Bible should become important. It should become clear as we look at it. And so I think it's important to understand the, the structure of the Bible because I think, I think most people, if you talk to the average Christian and ask, well, how's the Bible laid out? What's the structure of the Bible? You might get, there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. And I think after that, Pastor, how much further do you think you'd get? I mean, would they know some of the distinctions? So we start off by saying, and we'll stop in a couple minutes for questions. Uh, but we want to go ahead and start. On page 6, the Bible is composed of 66 books written by about 40 authors over 3,100 years. Now, some say more time than that. But the reason you'll notice that I put in there is because I know what they, they generally attribute Job to being written about 3000 BC, which would put him bef way before Abraham even. So he would have been a Gentile, he was saved. And by the way, the book of Job has one distinction. It is the only book in the Old Testament that was written by a non-Jew. Did you know that? Only book of the Bible, because it was written before there were even Jews. 
Abraham wasn't even on the scene at this point. He was way back before that. So that's about 3,000. And I, I put that the, the revelation was written no later than about 100 AD. I, I think it's somewhere between 95 and 100. So that would give you 3,100 years that the Bible's written over. Now, despite the fact that you have that length of time and you have authors that didn't know each other, the Bible maintains a remarkable unity. This ought to be considered as yet another evidence that the Bible is truly God-breathed. No other religious work written is written over such a long period of time by so many different authors who are in perfect agreement. Now think about that. You have three, over 3,100 years, and yet do you have any difference? If you read through the, ma the major prophets and the minor prophets, you'll find that they have a similar message, that message is in agreement. The message is in agreement, but they, some of them didn't even know each other. They lived years apart. You know, Isaiah lived through a number of years of rain, but I don't know that Isaiah lived up to see Jeremiah. I don't think Isaiah knew Jeremiah. And Ezekiel knew of Jeremiah, but he didn't know him either. And those were the major prophets. And so, but you have perfect agreement. You have perfect agreement over all that, dis that time. Now, the Bible is divided into two testaments or covenants because God is dealing with two distinctly different groups. Now, that seems as obvious as a sledgehammer to me, but I'll, I'll lay you odds with if you went out and talked to most Christians they would not think of it this way. They would not understand that there are two covenants or two testaments because God is dealing with two distinctly different groups. Today they're, they're teaching everywhere that there's one people of God. Old Testament, New Testament, it's just one people of God. Really? I wasn't circumcised because I was a Jew. I was circumcised because of sanitation. I mean, uh, I, I have never, they, I didn't get a bar mitzvah when I hit 12 years of age. I didn't get that, and I didn't. I'm glad I didn't. I didn't want to have to read the Torah in Hebrew. <laughs> That's part of a bar mitzvah in Israel. You have to be able to read from the Torah out of the Hebrew language. Now, of course, they speak Hebrew, but still, it's challenging to those kids at that age. So, I think you'd find that people don't know that. Two different groups, the Israel and the church. The guidelines for Israel contained in the Old Testament and those for the church are contained in the epistles to the church in the New Testament. You notice I said to the epistles to the church. The guidelines for the church, and let's be careful because what's called the New Testament includes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you're only going to find a little part of John that has any instruction that relates to the church at all. It's history and it's really more like Old Testament than it is like New, so be careful. So the guidelines for the church are really contained in, the, in those church epistles. It's important to recognize that God is a separate program in Israel for Israel and the church. It is never right to borrow verses from the Old Testament and to apply them to the church. And it is not right to read the benefits of the church back into the Old Testament. When we take, this is top of page 7, I believe. I've written all over, I can't see my page numbers. <laughs> That's 7, isn't it? Okay. It's, it's important, and when we take the Bible literally, it is crystal clear that God can and does maintain two different plans which are different with different benefits and different promises. And so we'll go on from there. We'll pick up the, on the top of page 7 and start talking about the division of, of the Old Testament. This is something that you know, but you might find that you, some of this information is written in a way that you can share with people who don't know this. Because you'll find that a lot of Christians just flat don't realize something as simple as the Old Testament was written for the Jews and the guidelines are there and the New Testament guidelines are in the epistles to the church. Because they want to take the, the guidelines for the church out of the New Testament. But you know what they're going to do when they say that? They're going to say, well, Matthew's 
Matthew is the New Testament, and I'm going to go to the Sermon on the Mount. That's why we put it in there the way we did, because I know what people do. And you do too if you've been around this church for very long. They will go and pick the Sermon on the Mount. That's why there's more existing copies of the Gospels than there are of the Epistles. Because that's what the early church started doing. It's amazing how quick they... When we think about error creeping into the church, they say in the last days there'll be be a great exodus of people fall away from the truth all over the place. I got a big headline for you. They fell away from the truth about as soon as the apostles wrote the letters. They were falling away from the truth back then. So that's doctrinal error is not, not anything new. Those who want to make it a sign of the end, what would you, how would you interpret it then back when they fell away from, was that the sign of the end time back 100 AD when they were departing from the faith? They sure started early.